All right. Well, good evening. Thanks, guys, for showing up. Uh, thanks for everybody who's listening online and for the people who are live and for the people who are listening maybe a couple days, a couple weeks from now. Um, we really appreciate uh, just the fact that we have a community of people who, who actually care to think, care to dig in a little bit di differently. Um, this is a unique thing. We don't usually do these these deep dives, but in the course of this series, as we're digging into the the Apostles' Creed, uh, one of the things that we've been talking about is really that that our faith is reasonable. Um, and so sometimes we spend a lot of time talking about um, the things that actually really do make a difference in our faith, which tends to be relationship and connection with the Lord. Uh, but but in the course of this series, we thought we would leave a little bit of space to dig a little bit deeper into kind of the nerdy things, into the reasonable, logical conversations, and also into, it's still into the reality of, of what does make a real difference, which is our connection with the Lord. So we have, a, a man, we just had a little conversation in my office kind of prepping for, uh, for this conversation, and it was really exciting. I am looking forward very much so uh, to the next hour and 15 or so. Uh, so we have a, a really awesome panel for you guys tonight. You guys know Jeff, uh, who preached a sermon uh, tonight. We'll be talking about uh, a bunch of things related to his, uh, the topic that he dove into, which was, uh, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty Maker of Heaven and Earth. Uh, Jeff, as you guys know, is the founder and executive director of Phoenix One, which does some really beautiful work uh, as far as bringing the church together in Phoenix and, and helping and healing and equipping uh, pastors to really uh, keep their shoulder to the plow. Um, and he's also a really fun guy um, who uh, loves his family a lot, and that shows very much in everything that he does. Uh, we have uh, Dr. John Chung, uh, who is a professor over at GCU. Uh, he is the, uh, sorry, I got my notes here for all of their, John is, uh, John and, and uh, his wife BC are quite accredited, so I had to jot down some notes there. He's associate uh, professor of world religions and missions at GCU. Uh, he has spent over 10 years teaching in Southeast Asia. Uh, he's got a Master of Divinity, Master of Theology, and a PhD at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, he teaches a lot in uh, the topics of Islam and folk religions, um, and he's written on spiritual warfare, the Trinity, and money and missions. Um, and as, as far as I'm concerned, uh, John is a, a, a really special, unique friend uh, for me, uh, John and his wife and his family. Uh, for one, because they're the only people I can speak Indonesian with. Um, which is a lot of fun. Uh, not a lot of people speak Indonesian here uh, in, uh, in Phoenix. Uh, but, but really one of the things that I've gotten to know about John and his family is that this is a family of people who, um, you know, there are some people who enjoy nerding out and thinking and being smart because they like being smart, and maybe in part because that's the way the Lord has made them. And then there are other people who really in, enjoy digging deep and getting into the word and thinking things through and using their mind because as they do that, they seem to encounter God in a really unique and special way. Um, and, and John and his family really is a family of individuals who, as far as I can tell, love understanding God and his people because in doing that, they, they get to know God and his people a bit more. Um, and so I've, I've really appreciated that uh, about John. Uh, and his wife, uh, B.C. Uh, Bengcha, uh, is equally one of those individuals. It's really fun. I, I can't wait for you guys to get to see the two of them interact and, and have some conversations. Uh, Jeff's laughing because he just saw it, and it was really fun. Uh, uh, Bengcha is absolutely every bit uh, the kind of person who... Uh, who uh, is on that same same tier, a, a real smart person. She told me not to call her smart, um, but it's true. How about intellectually advanced? Intellectually advanced, yeah, we'll, we'll say that. Uh, but I think it says a lot for her heart that she says, please don't say that about me, because the truth is, she really is just someone who more than anything sees the beauty of God um, in understanding his creation. Uh, 
she is, uh, her as well as John are Chinese immigrants born uh, or raised in, in Malaysia, spent quite a few years uh, living and studying in the States, as well as Singapore and teaching generally around Southeast Asia. Uh, BC is a nurse um, and she fell in love with the Lord and fell in love with this guy sitting next to her at some point in time. Uh, they felt a call to missions and so she started going to seminary and fell in love uh, with the word of God and theology uh, and the Hebrew language and she teaches uh, Hebrew, has done so in Borneo and Malaysia. Um, and again, is just one of those people who has a rich appreciation for God and his word. Um, and so I'm really excited tonight uh, to spend some time talking with the three of you. Uh, about God, Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. Um, so uh, as we get ready to dive into that, uh, Jeff, I want to start with you. Uh, you did a really awesome job uh, this week. I, I heard a lot of people in, in our staff meeting on, on Tuesday just saying, man, I feel like, you know, Jeff's done a lot of really awesome messages, but this was, this was, that was like, man, a whole other level of just really articulate. Well, I got to speak on God, so. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it helps. Like, yeah. It helps. You know, I, I'm joking, you know, next week Ryan uh, gets to preach on Jesus. Yeah. So kind of, <laughs> yeah. kind of, kind of a, a little bit of material there when we're, when we're yeah. diving into the Bible. Yeah. Um, so I want to hit on some of the topics that we were talking about a little bit. Actually, maybe tonight we can start with a, a question. Uh, we waited for the questions towards the end uh, last week. I think we're going to dive into some really cool places with just the stuff that the three of you were wanting to talk about. Uh, but one of the questions that came in in the last couple weeks, uh, uh, and we didn't have a ton that came in for this particular week, but here's one that, that really does apply. If God is all-knowing and all-powerful, how can God be all-good if he makes people he knows uh, will ultimately go to hell? Um, <laughs> Just a fun little one to yeah, jump we'll in. Yeah, we'll start off light. All right, Doctor Doctor John. Appetizer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, yeah. So Jeff, making it hard on you uh, yeah. since you did the prep. I, well, I, the only thing question? I'll say, and I think we can go in, is if I didn't create myself, right? I didn't. I'm not self-existent. God is, and so. I, I think that struggle ends up becoming a really, it starts to expose a part of that, and it is very human to ask that question. I think very human to ask that question. Um, but I, I think it starts to expose us. It starts to expose the tension that's in us, the reason why we ask these questions, it starts to expose. Like, I find it so interesting, like even in the, let's just say Noah, that I have an Arabic friend, they're some of our closest friends, and he, he, he brought something to light that I had never really thought about, is that it's not like he just was like, I'm flooding everything. He like, it was a period of time. And he said, this is what my Arabic friend, they missed the miracle that was right in front of him. That, that there really was an opportunity for there to be repentance and their, heart, their hearts were hardened. And so he released them over to the desires of their heart. Again, Romans one, that we intrinsically know that, that, that God has placed into us. We intrinsically know through what we see that, they, that God exists but he releases us to the desires of our heart. Therefore, and again, depending on where you lie theologically, whether uh, you're reformed or, or not, uh, it, you'll determine this thing. But for, for me is that he releases us to the desires of our heart. Um, and so, Again, I think within this particular, we want more control. We want to determine who God is, what God should do, how God should act. And what we're really struggling with is that a God, a God that is high and lifted up, almighty God, the creator of all things. And so it creates an immense amount of tension in us because we don't like that lack of control. And we want to start going, I wish you would be more human. Really. 
I wish you would thought a little more human. Um, and, and that's a real, that's right now a part of what's happening culturally that we, we need to deal with. So that was my very, I went to, I don't have very many letters in front of my name, but you have a lot more. So I think you, I think you can help a little bit more. Yeah. I think it's very important, like what Jeff uh, has said, that there is a, a, a diversity of views, uh, even among Christians and evangelicals on it. Uh, you know, whether you are leaning more on Calvinistic or whether you're leaning more on a Wesleyan or Armenian uh, free will position. Uh, that being said, uh, when we look at Scripture, I think uh, Scripture also gives us this spectrum of views as well. So you have uh, very strongly deterministic passages, for example, in Romans chapter 8, you know, that God has predestined. Yeah. Uh, and when you lean on these particular verses, it gives a very strong sense that uh, whatever God has predestined, He is foreordained, and uh, everything seems very uh, locked, uh, uh, tight, and so forth. But then you have also have other scripture passages, for example, in the Old Testament, uh, Hezekiah, uh, God had decreed that Hezekiah would die. But then Hezekiah pleads and begs and, and asks God to extend his life. And then God relents, you see, even though God had already decreed, decreed that Hezekiah would die and so forth. So when we look at these passages in Scripture, uh, I think what is important is not so much to focus on what God commands as much as the, the, the person behind the commands or the decrees, which is God in its very character. God uh, is just, and so when He says that He will do things, He does things because of justice. But at the same time, God also looks at the heart of people as well, such as Hezekiah that repents. So God can also uh, act on the basis of His mercy and His love as well. So, uh, and we, we see the same thing as well, even in the modern uh, day uh, court of law as well. If we are found guilty and we are brought before a court of law, of the, the, the law book says that if we are guilty of such and such a thing, the, the statute say that we should pay for this particular crime or for a particular sentence in jail and so forth. But at the same time, the judge has the liberty to also uh, offer clemency to us as well, you see, based on the conduct or the appeal of the person before the judge. So in the same way, God in a sense is like that. God is a judge, but God also, like the judge, is able to act on the basis of mercy and clemency as well. So we shouldn't uh, overdo it on one side, neither the other, but we leave it up to the mystery of God. And I think this is where uh, we have to learn to trust in who God is. Yeah, and that's what the interesting thing, like, that's where Paul, I love Romans because Roman, go, you know, he's laying the foundation for all that we kind of believe theologically. And he's like, in the middle, is like, who, who can understand the mind of God? Who can, it's almost like he's like, wow, the mystery of all this, the vastness of all this. And so I think we really love to kind of make it, well, let me make it easy for you. Let me, there's either this side or this side. And even Paul himself is going, who can understand the mind of God? Who can compre, uh, comprehend and his ways? But at the end of the day, he is the creator. He is the giver and taker of life. And how he chooses to do that is way above me. And who am I to decide what God can do and can't do? So if I'm, again, if I get back to Genesis 1, he is God. He creates. And he allows things to rise and he allows things to fall. 
I don't, I can question that, I have a free will, but at the end of the day, if I disagree with that, it doesn't really matter, because he's God, he determines, he decides. So. Jeff, you had a really good question uh, that elicited a really great answer when we were talking a little bit ago on this subject. Yeah. I wonder if you could just reiterate that question. I actually don't even know what it was, but uh, thank you that you believe <laughs> that it was a really good question. You, you, were, you were asking John and BC about, do you see this question popping up in Southeast Asia oh, yeah. and other cultures? Yeah. Yeah, so a part of what I had experienced is this idea of suffering, condemnation, things like that. I've not, in all my travels around the world, I used to be a mission pastor, so I used to get to travel around the world, and, and I've done that since I was young. But I have never experienced that question in other cultures. And so we had gone back and forth, and you gave a very wise answer that I had never really even thought of considered. So please help us. Yeah, so this question basically only arises if you are a Christian and we, we consider it in a Christian monotheistic context. Because in Southeast Asia, for example, in Hinduism, there's a plurality of gods. There are good gods and there are bad gods. So the question of there being a bad or an evil god really is just uh, assumed and it's, it's really not a problem at all. Uh, in, in Buddhism, there's really no gods. Evil really arises out of human attachment and human desires to do things that cause evil. So that's a different uh, equation altogether. And in Islam, it tends to be that Allah is in control of everything and whatever Allah does, it is up to his prerogative. So it's an unquestioned, uh, no doubts case whatsoever to uh, Allah. But in Christianity, because there's only supposed to be one God, then the question always arises, how can one God who is supposedly omnipotent, all-powerful, permit evil and suffering to occur? Uh, but the interesting thing in Christianity is that Christianity is not like uh, in Hinduism where there's good God and bad God. In Hinduism, if there's evil or there's badness in real life, everything is assumed to be just maya or an illusion. But that's not Christianity. Christianity says suffering and evil are real. It's not an illusion. In Buddhism, you detach yourself from your desires. But Christianity doesn't say that. It says we need to lay our desires before the cross and transform it into something new. So Christianity answers in a different way. And Christianity is also not like Islam, where it says, you know, everything is just to be laid before God without any doubts, without any question whatsoever. Christianity allows us to doubt God and to question God. But in Christianity, the part of the answer to evil and suffering is that we are also agents of God. We are the body of Christ in the church. And we are God's presence to actually deal with evil in this world and the suffering that is in uh, and the reason is because there's free will. God gives the angels free will to also rebel against him, and that's where we get a source of suffering and evil through Satan, but through human beings as well. So Christianity really gives the most realistic, I think, uh, depiction of what uh, suffering and evil is in terms of a good, uh, goodness in God and how God deals with the evil in this world that's caused by human beings and Satan as well. And just think how costly free will is. I mean, what a great gift, but like... if. You're a God, and you're going, I give you a, a free will decision. Like that, I'm always like, that is a, what a phenomenal thing to go. I'm not micromanaging necessarily. So I'm sovereign over all, but free will. So as you see free will, how do you see all that? Because I could see you. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jeff. Um, that's a question that always came up when we went to, uh, when I was dialoguing with my student on Genesis and the question always came up is why God even bothered putting a tree there? If the tree was not there in the first place, then there wouldn't be sin and there wouldn't be consequences. There wouldn't be evil in this world. But I think 
we have to go back a little bit further because I think the root of that question is why would a good God allow us to suffer? Why would a good God punish people to go to hell? Is that we come from a system of uh, belief in good behavior deserves rewards and bad behavior deserves deserve punishment. But if we go all the way back into Genesis 1, we see that when God created the world, He created us to be in an intimate relationship with Him. Like uh, Adam and Eve were in the garden with God face to face. There's no barriers. There's something that just we cannot even begin to fathom, that we can see God face to face and have a relationship without any kind of barrier. But but if you think of relationship, one of the key things that is really important in relationship is having that freedom to respond, right? Imagine, I, I, I'm sure some of you here are parents or you have nieces or nephew. Imagine you love someone and that person does not respond back or doesn't have that freedom to respond back to you. I think that freedom to choose, that freedom to respond the freedom to want to be in a relationship with our Creator and God is really the essence of who we are as humanity. Because when God created us, He created us in that loving relationship and He gave us that complete freedom to respond to Him. But unfortunately, the world that we are in right now and where we live right now, we are not in Genesis 1 and 2. We live in a world that came after Genesis 3 and when sin entered, it change, it destroyed, and it corrupted uh, creation in every single aspect. It corrupted relationship between us and God, corrupted relationship between husband and wife, between each other. And really from that point onward, we really begin to see God's redemption begins. And the whole story of the Bible is to bring us in anticipation of through Jesus' redemption to bring us back into that intimate face-to-face -face relationship with God where we can see Him without any barriers, without sin, and in total perfect unity and fellowship. That's awesome. You can see why I'm excited <laughs> for tonight. So uh, yeah, just some rich, rich stuff. Can I add uh, another yeah, thing? I think another thing to also realize uh, in uh, good and evil is that uh, when we look at good and evil in the Bible, we see that God is actually always in control. Even though there is great evil, God is always in control. Even he's not though surprised he's, by it. He's not what? surprised by it, exactly. So this makes a very, very uh, big difference between uh, Christianity and uh, the Eastern religions as well. Because in the, in the Eastern religions, you always have this balance between good and evil, good God, uh, bad God. Uh, goodness and evil, they're at 50-50. Is that the yin and yang? Uh, that's, that's part of it. Part of it. I wouldn't say yin and yang is okay. evil. Yin and yang is just, you know, uh, the, the hardness and the softness. Huh? Uh, what I'm really trying to say is that this 50-50 balance between good and evil is what is called the Indo-European worldview. And actually, it's very deeply embedded in, even in our culture. For example, sports. We love to watch teams that are evenly balanced, right? Nobody loves to see, a, you know, a football game that's like 50, you know, to zero score, right? We, we love to watch equally balanced contests that are hard fought and, uh, you know, a final touchdown pass at the end that wins. But God and evil, it's not like that. Because God is always ultimately in control. Uh, 
And God has already won the victory to the cross of Jesus Christ already. And everything else is just a mop-up operation. So what is happening in the world is really that God allows evil to happen because it is part of, number one, our way in which we respond to God and the suffering in this world to be His agents. And this is how uh, people can see that there is a good God. And another is how we ourselves respond and how we deal with evil ourselves when we get evil or suffering onto our lives is part of our own growth and discipleship as well. And so there are several things that we could go more into it, but I think it's very important to see that even in Genesis 1, when there was evil, God was always in control and He already uh, had a plan, you know, for all of these things to deal, deal with it in His time and place. Which I find so interesting because Jesus says, I've got two promises for you. You're going to suffer. In this world, you'll suffer take heart, I've overcome the world. And he, he, so suffering is as a direct result of sin. So Jesus, I got two promises. You, you'll suffer, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And I think in there, that is the human reality that Jesus came incarnated and, and redeemed and invites us now into, hey, but I'm creating a new place. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. But these two realities while you're here are, is experiencing that evil, that suffering, but also not losing heart or losing hope that I've overcome the world and living in the balance of those two things. Jeff, you, you really honed in on Sunday on, uh, well, obviously on God the Father, right? That was, that was kind of the key crux of, 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 of that passage of, or that, that section of the Apostles' Creed, right? But you spent some time really talking about uh, the word father and the and relationship you mentioned, you know, your relationship with your father and how that, that, that really is a loaded word, right? I think a lot of us have a very different understanding depending on what your earthly father was like of, of what our heavenly father is like. And, and for a lot of people who've had a rougher relationship with the dad who maybe was absent or maybe was authoritarian, I think a lot of people who've had that, that more um, strained or uh, even unhealthy relationship with the earthly father, they have a tendency to look to the Old Testament and say, well, well there, there we go. There he is. There's the angry, authoritarian, distant God. Um, and, and, then, and then those same people will look and oftentimes they'll say, is it a different God in the New Testament? It seems yeah. so, I, I don't see the connection. Um, and, and BC, this is something that you, I think, really had a lot to, to, to read into, really a lot to say about this topic of, of the thread of continuity that, you know, between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, that to bring some clarity that, that it is the same God, um, and that we see both his mercy and his justice in both. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Okay. So uh, first I'll focus on uh, the figure of God the Father. I think a lot of times when we read the Old Testament, we tend to zero in on the hero's figures or, you know, we have all these positive examples, negative examples. So we read isolated stories in the Old Testament. But um, so if we try to push this hero stories aside, not, I'm not saying that they're not important, but I think a lot of times when we focus on the, this biblical character, it clouded our, our vision that we don't see God as the one who is actually behind the scene and working out the salvation. Um, the reason I love the Old Testament, my husband always have to warn me, there is a New Testament, you know. You have to keep reading after the book of Malachi, okay? It's, it's because <laughs> I think Old Testament is a very, very realistic book. And sometimes it actually gives us a fuller theology and this uh, depiction of God the Father than the New Testament. 
you see the fuller descriptions of God's character, His holiness, how He interacts with people, how He interacts with people when they sin, how He interacted with people when they obey, how He interacted with people when they struggle. So you have this really full character of God coming, uh, coming in through the, that is really interwoven through the stories of the Old Testament narrative. But I think a lot of times we miss that because we focus on the biblical characters and we, what we have is just uh, bits and pieces from different parts of the Old Testament. I remember I, uh, one year I was, um, after, after reading through the Old Testament, I was like, okay, how did we jump from historical book to prophetic book? That is such a, you know, to me, that is a big gap. I, I, I can't enter from one world to the next. There is a huge gap. So I, I gave myself a project. I said, okay, I'm going to straighten this out once and for all. <laughs> and I started reading the historical book and the prophetic book together. And I just read them chronologically. When this happened in the, in, in the book of Samuel, or in the book of First, First and Second King, what did the prophet say about that? And so when you put those two together, I was completely blown away because when I read the Old Testament prophets, I was like, oh, the, what I used to understand from the prophetic book was the, the messianic prophecy. And then secondly, is God is super angry. He's very, 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 very angry at Israel. But when you put the historical book and the prophetic book together, you really see God's love, God's faithfulness towards Israel, how he endured and patiently waited for Israel to repent after many, many times of giving them opportunity to respond to him, but they never did. And this is where I, I mean, my conversion, yes, my faith is in Jesus Christ. I believe what Jesus did for us, but it was really in the Old Testament where I really encountered God and where I really came to understand. Uh, this is one of those very important uh, words in the Old Testament, uh, chesed, that talk about the faithful uh, loving kindness of God. A lot of time we see that word, we think, oh, it's our Western concept of love. But in the Hebrew Bible, it is a faithful, covenant-keeping, long-lasting love that will be there even when we, you know, sometimes when we mess up in life, God's love is still there. And it is really that thread uh, through the Old Testament where we see God created us in love for, for a perfect fellowship with Him in Genesis. That was broken in Genesis 3, and we see the next time when God lived among his people was when he appeared in the tabernacle. So he established his physical presence once again through the tabernacle, but Israel sinned and never really repented. And then we have, um, so we have the tabernacle, sorry, the temple, and then until we come to Jesus, where God himself, I think, Jeff, you brought that up, right, in John 1.14, where God himself once again reestablished his presence among his people. And of course, when we know in Revelation, when we are in new heaven and new earth, we will be with the, in the presence of God again. So there is this thread of the constant presence of God that started in Genesis that will end in Revelation. And we see God's intervention again and again and again and again. And his love pour out towards his people again and again and again through the entire Bible. Sorry, you got me started, so That's I'm gonna great. stop. Well, and, he, and there's this new movement. It's been going on for a bit, but just like get rid of the Old Testament. Like, and just focus in on the New Testament. Please don't do that. 
please, please don't do that. But it's like a new kind of thing that a lot of churches are talking about because to be honest, we don't want to deal with the book of Job. You know, we don't want to deal with that. And if we, we taught on it last summer and I, I mean, we found it to be, <laughs> it's one of my favorite books. I would, I, I would agree. I would agree. I would agree. And because it bring, it's very human and it brings out a lot of the different questions that we have. But at the end of the day, when God shows up, he's basically like, you're not God. You're not God. Will you follow me when stuff doesn't go the way you want it to go, when it doesn't look like the way you want to? And so we don't know what to do with that a lot of times as humans. So we're like, can we just get rid of that and get to the good stuff? I always say, for most of my life, I've struggled with Good Friday. Because I didn't, I didn't want to deal with Good Friday. I was like, get me to Sunday. Get me to resurrection. And it wasn't until I got to death, sin, Wages of sin, death, damnation, those are hard, heavy things that I, I just, I couldn't relate with God in that way. And it wasn't until I started really sitting in Good Friday, which I'm so proud of our church, the way we did Good Friday. So it wasn't this hip, hey, hooray, show up on Sunday. It was like, let's sit in this. All the disciples, all of them denied him, right? We denied him. Like, let's, Tenebrae, a tenebrae service is normally a service where they basically take all the candles and they snuff out each of the candles and say, look how we all denied him. And he died. Um, and then in the creed, which we'll get into, he ascended into hell. Huh? What? You know, like we, that's going to take more explanation. I promise we'll get there in the weeks to come. But like having to deal with that sin, that depravity is why we want to go. Can we just get rid of that? Get to the good stuff. Get to Easter Sunday, please. Um, and I think it's, uh, to what you're saying, it, that's where the reconciliation happens. That's where we can see these two realities coming together. The veil in the temple. How much do you love that? The veil in the temple ripped. Come, come, come yeah, to me. I think to John's point, and, uh, and you, can, you can get the thought you're about to give it a second, but uh, I think to, to the point you were making earlier, too, really ties into that, which is the, the Christian worldview is the only worldview yeah. that in a satisfying way deals with all of this reality, and it's because we find in the character of God, the God who created this entire universe. And so, so in his character is something that deals uh, with the reality of sin, uh, both through justice as well as through mercy. Uh, and I think, I think what I heard you say in BC was really you see that consistently, like from, from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, you see a God who loves justice, who wants things to be beautiful and, and right and, and really harmonizing with the way he created things to be. And a God who also is in some ways intensely pragmatic with us, that once we've broken the world, once we've broken ourselves, well, now what do we do? I don't want to scrap this whole thing. So how can I, how can I insert mercy into this? And so that's what you see consistently. And that message comes through in a really on-the-nose way in the New Testament, but it is ever-present in the Old. Actually, I think one of the biggest struggles why some people have with the Old Testament is like, and, and this was discussed uh, last, last time around, which is these passages in Joshua, right, where God uh, tells uh, Israel to utterly kill and destroy these many things. And so we had that conversation last week, but I think I want to add a few more things to it. When, when we look at the fact that God is uh, a love, loving God, He's a merciful and kind God, 
how do we reconcile this in those passages in Joshua, right? Okay, so I'm not an Old Testament person like my wife, okay? But what I do is that uh, part of what I do is I study world religions and I compare cultures as well and how uh, people deal with evil, how people deal with violence in this world and how, and, it's, and how ancient religions also deal with violence back in those days. Now, if we look at it in that way, I think to me, uh, three or four very interesting things appear. One is that in the ancient Near East, uh, whenever uh, somebody, another nation does something uh, uh, bad that they don't like, what, what, what the, the nation will do is they will go in and they will uh, destroy the entire nation. And the only exception is if everybody converts to their religion. And if they don't convert to their religion or their faith, then they're going to utterly wipe out everybody. So it's very interesting because Israel was operating in this kind of very common mindset as well. Okay, so that's one. The sec- but, but the thing is that if, if they go into another nation and the nation, and the nation says, I've, I've heard about how horrible and terrible you are. Will you please show us mercy if we serve, if we serve you? Uh, what they will do is they'll make them into slaves as well, you see? And so what's very interesting is that in Israel, in, in the book of Joshua, we find an example of the Gibeonites who actually heard of what the God of Israel did, and they said, we've heard what the God of Israel did, and so we beg for you for your mercy. This is why we dis- disguised ourselves. Let us serve you, and so and so forth. So actually, we see that happening in there as well. A second thing we see happening is that whenever God calls Israel to fight, very, very consistently, Israel is always fighting at a numerical inferiority. God never commands Israel to go and utterly fight and destroy the nations in a militarily, numerically superior position. That is something no ancient Near East nation would do. It is sure folly or suicide to actually fight with a foe that is larger than you because God wanted Israel to trust that He would empower their fights. So that's something that's very, very unique. And the third thing also is that uh, when, when these things happen, why? It's because uh, the nations like the Canaanites, they, they do very utterly detestable uh, practices such as sacrificing uh, their child in front of the god Molech, in front of a fire pit and so on and so forth. Now, if we were to do that today, I don't know, maybe the closest parallel would be the Nazis, right? Okay, I mean, what would we do? In fact, uh, the, the, the Allied did not even utterly wipe out, uh, you know, the Allied, the, the Nazis at all. You had the Nuremberg trials and so forth, which are all modern-day inventions. But those kinds of mechanisms didn't exist in those days. And so what would happen is they would utterly destroy all of these people. But yet at the same time, uh, God still had a provision to them, though, that you, if, you know, if you actually may marry them, you know, kill all these animals and so forth. So even Israel did not utterly kill and destroy all these things as well. So it's some of these examples that we actually see acts of God's mercy and the way that God acts to the nations very, very differently than all the other ancient Near East gods or nations would also do. So, but isn't it interesting that he even uses those nations to come up against Israel as a result of their rebellion? So not only is it God using Israel, the people of God, but then it, to, to, you know, and this is where we get like, why would all that bad stuff happen and what's God doing there? But also that God uses those nation states to cap, capture and destroy Israelites. 
And so God's going to do what God's going to do. He's a jealous God, and, but he's not like a jealous girlfriend, like a jealous boyfriend. You know, he's a jealous because he's holy, holy, holy. And so we don't know how to reconcile all, all of this. But within the Old Testament, you get that dynamic. And it's trying to help us explain that and understand that. Is that what you're kind of saying? And this is really probably coming up as in some of the criticism around or the around, you know, God is a God of genocide. Correct? Is that why you're bringing up some of that, that stuff? Because I actually think it's really important. Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's open a new can of worms. Um, <laughs> let's, let's move I thought down. the God of, the, of genocide was actually a pretty... Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a great can of worms, you know. There's, yeah. there's those yeah. genocidal worms, you know. Um, let's, <laughs> let's move uh, two, two more words down in the creed. Almighty maker. Um, I think we were, when we were talking about this, you, you can't bring up the, the words almighty maker in reference to God and not think about the beginning of the book of Genesis, mm-hmm. which is hard sometimes to, you know, bring up the Bible and not really uh, start diving into the beginning of the book of Genesis. So there are, I think, a million different rabbit trails that we were taking as we started to talk about that. But let's just, uh, uh, let's, let's start with uh, the first one, which is a little bit detached from the idea of Almighty Maker, but then I think we'll loop back around and dive more into the character of God. But one of the things that comes up really commonly, I, I would say a, a lot of people are getting tired of the conversation uh, and yet I think it's a really important conversation that's worth having, and, and I think particularly worth, uh, worth recognizing that even on, on this panel within this church, uh, this is one of the areas where there's some room. Uh, and so let, let's talk a little bit about what is, what is the, be, the beginning of Genesis telling us? Is it, is it telling us uh, the, you know, the steps that God took uh, functionally to, uh, to form and forge uh, the spiritual realm as well as the physical realm? Is it, is it talking about something uh, more to do with the, with the function and the ordering of the world? Uh, is it, is it, are we talking about a 6,000-year-old uh, creation or a few million-year-old creation? Um, and and a, a little, little um, insight for you is I think we'll see some, a, a range of opinions here. And I think this is really key, even before yeah. we dive into this, to say, because as we're talking about the creed, one of the things we're doing is we're trying to talk about things that are really important. The, this is the hill we'll die on. This is the boundary marker. This is, this is what it means to what we really believe is healthy. Uh, and then there are some things that you get a few degrees down the road and you say, actually, like, you're right or I'm wrong or vice versa or, or whatever, um, but there's some room for health in this disagreement. Uh, and there's actually a lot of health in the humility to say, uh, you might be right, I might be right, I don't know. So let's talk a little bit about that, about that, that how old is the world, yep. what happened in the beginning of Genesis? So I'm gonna, I, I'd like to frame this up and then you guys get to run crazy with it. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> so, so we established on Sunday that God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, is an essential. So, and I, I think I even made it a point on Sunday going like, um, that's what I'm most concerned about. What happened next, how that hurt, how old that, that's a non-essential. That's something we can go back and forth on, but the essential is that God is the one who did it, however it happened, how old, however old it is, what we need to get back to, and I really think Christians need to kind of go, yeah, 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 we're having a debate here, and we disagree on some things, but we do affirm and agree and unify with the fact that is God is the one who did it. I was telling them that I had grown, I grew up with Ken Ham is a guy I grew up with. He's a hardcore creationist. 
And essentially the claims he was doing as a, as a kid was like, as a kid and I grew up in this way, was like, if you don't believe that, he, that, that the earth is, is a new earth and it's 6,000 years, then, then you don't really believe in the Bible. Like you don't, you've just completely written it off. And so it was just kind of this, oh gosh, I have to believe this. But as I started getting older and started doing more reading, I found myself in tension because I'm like, whoa, wait a second. And then I was like, oh, science is bad only. And then it got into that massive debate that was going on. And so I found myself in a place of having to really dig in and learn in this non-essential aspect of this particular thing. And now you guys get to take it from there. <laughs> Ladies first. <laughs> she wants to debate you first. <laughs> I think the first thing I want to say is that the Bible was not written for us 20th or 21st century audience mm. to answer questions of creation versus evolution. Genesis 1 was written for the people of Israel during those times in the ancient Near East and also for uh, the people of Israel during the time of Jesus. And in those times, it was a taken-for-granted uh, fact or belief that there's always been a God because atheism did not really exist in the ancient Near East. Everybody just believed in God. The only issue was what kind of a God makes or creates uh, the world. So when the account that we read in Genesis 1 is really an account of a monotheistic God that creates the world that is good. So you know everything that God creates is good. Day one after day two was good and good, 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 right? So when we compare it to the ancient Near East gods, uh, like the Mesopotamian account, the Sumerian account, the Egyptian uh, creation account and all of this, uh, the way that human beings are created, the way that things are created, it's actually very terrible. For example, I can't remember, I think it's either Mesopotamian or the Sumerian. Uh, human beings are created as a result of the gods eating food and the leftover bones spill over to the ground and out of these bones are come from human beings. So therefore, human beings are uh, just an afterthought or a waste of the gods. Yeah, not fearfully made, not uh, exactly. knit together in a mother's womb. Yeah. Exactly. See? So that's one. And, and the other is that when we, we read Genesis 1, you can't escape from the impression that, you know, God said it was good, boom, you know. Okay? Uh, God made his boom, you know, it was good. God made his boom, it was, you know, it made it. So it's like very instantaneous, pop, 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 in rapid sequence. But when we compare this to how the other, other ancient Near East gods made the world, they actually labored to make or carve human beings. Or it came about, like I said, as an afterthought of a rubbish heap and so on and so forth. And so it also shows a god who is supremely powerful, does things effortlessly and instantaneously as well. So, so that's the first thing that I want to say, okay? Now... With that background in mind, how is it creation versus evolution? Now, if you were to ask me, my first instinct is because originally before I studied theology or world religions, I was trained as a chemist and I went to graduate school as a chemist as well. So I, th I tend to think scientifically as a chemist. And if I were to approach Genesis 1 uh, from a very scientific perspective, my answer would be... Uh, Number one, there is no such thing as evolution in the sense that there are actually two kinds of evolution. 
there is what is called macroevolution, which is change across species. And then there's microevolution, which is change within species. So, for example, dogs. You see many different varieties of dogs, you know? But you never see a dog evolve to a cat or vice versa. That's across species. That's macroevolution. So, when, uh, when proponents or opponents make the argument that Christians are for or against evolution, it's, it's a false argument because there's no question whatsoever that microevolution, change within species, is an observable scientific fact. But macroevolution, change across species, has never been observed in real time, nor in the course of history. And who do I have to quote from that? Stephen Jay Gould, the very famous Harvard biologist who has passed away now. In fact, he was so distressed that he never found any reliable transitional life forms across the geographic strata that he came up with an entirely new theory which is called punctuated equilibrium. And you can look it up. And punctuated equilibrium basically says that, well, we, we don't see any transitional life forms like a half dog, half cat, you know, and so forth. So we'll just say, you know, that this species made a huge jump across the gap to in evolve into this species and so on and so forth. And it still exists to this day. So I won't go into all these arguments about a punctuated, for and against punctuated equilibrium, the geographic strata of the raw carbon dating and so forth. But I think, uh, based just from my own perception as a scientist and ob observational data, I'm not convinced that macroevolution exists. Okay? So that bearing in mind, do I believe in a young Earth? Uh, yes, I do. But I don't believe that it is 6,000 years. Because I think my wife can add to that, there are gaps in the biblical genealogy. So we don't really know whether it's 6,000, 7,000, 10,000, or 20,000. But I am comfortable enough to know that God created this world. And I leave it up to that uh, for alone as the basis of my faith because God didn't really want to bother to answer that question for us. And so I think for, for me, it is good enough to hold that by faith, you know, that however the world came, it does not mean I seal off, I close off my mind, still continue to ask these questions, but it is a basis in which I, th I think there is a basis for young earth creation. Yeah, so for me, what he just talked about, just chew. <laughs> okay, I mean, I am a nurse. The I rest of us too. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was so good though. That was yes. so good. No, no disrespect. disrespect I got a youth ministry degree from Moody Bible Institute. <laughs> that just yeah. blew my mind. Well done. But for me, when I read Genesis 1 to 2, uh, that's not my main concern. So I think when I, when I first became a Christian, uh, I was a very, very young Christian when I met John. So I, when I read Genesis 1 and 2, it was difficult for me to try to reconcile some of the discrepancies. And so I kind of hang on to his faith because that is an area of science that I cannot wrap my mind around. I can't, I can't go deep enough. If he goes any further, I'll be completely lost. And so I kind of had to rely on him to really hold my faith in Genesis 1 and 2 as, uh, as the foundational truth for the whole Bible. But as I begin to read the Old Testament more and study more, and I, I slowly, I'm actually, I, I used to so-called associate myself with the young earth group, but I'm finding myself moving further and further and further away because as I read the Bible and as, as I understand how the Hebrew language works, to me, the young earth argument is very hard to sustain. And that's how we 
how I read the Bible. And so you can imagine when we do so-called Bible study, it's, <laughs> it's not a Bible study, it's a Bible... Uh, <laughs> focus discussion. Yeah, focus, focus discussion. discussion. <laughs> that's, that's how... So, yeah. so we come to the Bible with a very... Well, I would say very different background. We grew up very differently. So the way we look at the Bible, very differently. And when it comes to reading the Bible together, yes, we affirm the creed, we affirm the foundational truth in the Bible, but how that is played out, how the specific is spelled out, sometimes we actually find ourselves on different spectrum. Uh, I'll just add something real quick. Is that okay? I'm sure this will come up when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, John is a charismatic, I'm not. <laughs> uh, when, when we met, we were at the far end of the spectrum. Uh, I was very conservative. I went to, uh, uh, the first seminary I went to is a cessationist school, and he yeah. is a charismatic, yeah? Moody. Moody. I was at Dallas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Dallas will do it too. Yeah, so, so when, we, when we got married and... Uh, don't do this, okay? Don't do this at home. When we got married, and we, the, I remember the early days, we, we pre- it's very difficult. It's really very difficult for us to decide where to go to church. And when we try to do devotion together, when he prayed, I would say, please stop. <laughs> I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But that, that was where we were because I was so uncomfortable when he started to express his gift. And I would just, I was... Yeah. yeah. So, so we have come from opposite spectrum, and through the years, I mean, it, it's difficult. It's, marriage is difficult. Having theological heated discussion makes it even more difficult. But I, I really see the grace and the beauty of having, uh, you know, having a discussion with community of believers who hold, hold different views, because in the end, it will enrich our understanding of the Bible and and our understanding of who God is. I mean, we're closer now. Uh, we're closer now. We are trying to meet in the middle. He is, uh, he's still a charismatic. I'm still not. Uh, but we have helped each other to grow so much over the years. There's two things I want to really highlight that just, that just happened here. One is, I, I love when you said, as I study the Bible, I find myself moving this way. And that is so key. Uh, because there are, uh, because you can arrive to a conclusion because you have manipulated the Bible to do what feels more comfortable for you, right? So there are people who would say, I'm moving away from young earth because I, I just, because my high school science teacher told me I'm stupid if I believe in young earth. Um, and, I, and I think I, I trust my high school science teacher more. Um, and there are people who, like you, say, actually, I've been digging deeper and deeper and deeper and the deeper I, I, I dig, the more it seems that this is what the Bible's saying. And then there are people who, you know, like your husband would say, I dig deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and it seems to me young earth. And it's a, the, the key thing there, right, is like you're saying, you're both affirming that thing that, that, that I talked about two weeks ago, which is the Bible is true, it's authoritative, and it's inspired by God. And we are doing the work of trying to figure out exactly what God said and what it means. And we live our lives according to what it's saying because we believe in those things. And there are lots of other things, you know, so the church has, uh, you know, over the last 
you know, a generation or two has, uh, has had some shifts as far as the perspective of well, what does the Bible say about women in ministry? And I would say that there are people who have changed their perspective because they're adjusting to the culture and that left them very, very, very vulnerable to just manipulating the Bible. And then there are those who have dug in and said, actually, it seems to me that the Bible is not saying what we thought it said before. Um, and, and, and our understanding was warped by tradition and not so much by the reality of God's word. Uh, and so that's really key. The other thing I wanted to highlight that, that just happened here is, I, and I was really hoping this would happen, the, the reality of the, of, the, of the difference within your marriage on these topics, and, and yet you're married, and yet you're one, and yet there's beauty, and there's unity, and there's raising wonderful kids, you know? Uh, and that is something that, that is a perfect image of, of the body of Christ, right? We unify on things like the creed and what that really means and, and those really valuable things. And there is space for us to have humility to say, I think I'm right and, and, and maybe I'm wrong on a lot of other things. Uh, so I just wanted to really highlight that. Yeah, I think two more things I'd like to add is that it helps check each other's blind spots because she comes from a different perspective. She sees things that I might not theologically because I'm coming from a charismatic perspective, I'm coming from a young earth perspective, or you can add other things to that, you see, and vice versa. So I think it really helped to sharpen both of our views on what are really the essentials and what are really our little pet, you know, hobby horses, you know, that it's not so important. So that really helped us. The other thing that really helped us, and which I really only discovered later, and which my, you know, my wife can attest to this, is that whenever we visit different churches and we, you know, different denominations or different speakers, of course, I, I would love to be in a church that, you know, has just a full-blown Pentecostal charismatic worship, you know? <laughs> but my wife would just prefer a straight-up expositional <laughs> three or four-point sermon outline preaching, right? <laughs> Um, you know, but, but the interesting thing um, here is, Alec, is that whenever we have visited different churches, uh, I'm able to point out things that she doesn't see because she prefers a certain style of preaching, a certain way of exegeting Scripture, but it's not covering certain things that are, for example, uh, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned when it's explicitly there in the text, you know, or the fact that, you know, gifts are supposed to be affirmed, you know, among all of God's people, and certain denominations may not affirm that, you see. And then vice versa, she can point this out to me when I'm in the charismatic Pentecostal church as well. But the interesting thing that happens is that when we do visit a church and we find that the two of us agree this was a wonderful message. God is really speaking to this. In spite of our theological differences, in spite of our perspective, somehow, and it doesn't happen very often in life, but when it happens, it's really like we're able to see very clearly that God is really shining through that message. God's really shining through that church because we are able to just see very, very sharply beyond our own preferences or theological perspectives, you know, and it's a very, very beautiful thing that I never expected. Yeah, and I think, I think really, truly, <clears throat> one of the things you're saying is we really need to develop a, a, a hermeneutic of humility. Like, as we go into the study, so I, I brought this up briefly, but like over 43,000 different denominations 
after we gave people the Bible. So we, instead of it being something that unified us, it fractured us. And, and so this is a part of like coming in with that hermeneutic of humility, which says we unite on the essentials. We kind of struggle and sharpen one, each, one another on the essentials, on the non-essentials. And I think the Lord delights in it. As long as there's humility in the midst in a, in a teachable heart, I think he delights in, it's like a, a child learning how to tie its shoe. And you want to go, bah, 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 what are you doing? That doesn't, you know, and I think he delights in watching us try to struggle through it and figure it out. Like it must bring him so much joy as we're kind of digging into things that we can't possibly, can't possibly comprehend. But I think it brings him so much joy. And I think as believers in Jesus Christ, as we struggle through that together, if we develop a hermeneutic of humility, um, that, that helps bolster it. And then I think also, and this is one of the things I really enjoyed about our conversation earlier, is that c culturally, the way we approach the scriptures, you were, you were bringing up even culturally between you two, how fascinating, like my Arabic friend being able to bring this observation about Noah and his ark, that really comes, well, he lived, you know, he lived in Egypt, you know, that he was brought up there. They only moved here like eight years ago. And he has taught me so much about the Bible that I'd never seen. Well, why? Well, he's pretty close. You know, most of, a lot of the Bible's written in that region and he's teaching me so much. And I'm like, wow, I went to Bible college. I went to all these different things. And this man is teaching. So, but it's through friendship, it's through trust. And I think that's a great picture. Uh, as we wrestle through these, these massive theological understandings and understanding of who God is and wrestling through the creed, that we do that with humility, that we develop as we come to the scriptures, a hermeneutic of humility that really bathes the way we're kind of working through this together. That's the front we should have. Like John Mark Coomer said last week, and I thought this was so good in here. He said that the church should be the place that we do this, where we wrestle through these things. It should be the, a place where differing opinions and it should be a safe place for us to do that. Because if we affirm who God is, he delights in that interaction, that, that iron sharpening iron. So anyway, I thought that was helpful. Yeah, I think it's, it's uh, in the Proverbs, maybe Ecclesiastes, but I think it's in the Proverbs, it says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to find it out mm. uh, or to seek it out. And I love that, that there's something about glory for us of seeking out these unknown things and, and doing that wrestling. Uh, Jeff, I actually, I wanted to ask you, um, when you look at um, Genesis 1, um, and, and maybe briefly, because I want to hit one more thing while we still have time too. Uh, when you look at Genesis 1, uh, John hit on this a little bit, but, but what do you see of the character of Almighty Maker in, in well, Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning of Genesis? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think we, we touched on it, but at the, at the end of the day, that he only designs out of who he is. So it makes sense that every time he makes something, it's good. You know, that he designs the difference between different things that happen. He's designed. So at the end of the day, the un he is the uncreated creator. He is the architect. He is the one designing it. He's the one in control. And what he does is good because he's good. Truth exists because God exists. Goodness exists because God exists. So I just see that goodness. And he's pleased because it's his nature. So what he designs, what he develops is good. And so what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that goodness 
all that glory. And then a deep, deep, deep desire. And you brought this up and I just, all, he wants relationship. Like he wants a relationship. He wants a relationship. He wants to walk in the garden. He wants, and that same desire is carried all the way through the New Testament and, and ends in Revelation with us praising him in heaven and glorifying him because that's how it was always meant to be. He's a God who is relational and he loves us and he sees us and he knows us. That has brought so much comfort and joy to my soul, especially in a place where relationships so fractured. I have, you know, my mom is, uh, I'm so close with my mom, but my mom left when I was 12. That relationship was fractured. My relationship with my father, we're growing in that, but that was fractured. But my I realized the other day, I was talking to my counselor, and I realized God has been the most faithful presence in my life since I committed my, and so it was like this, like my father and my mother, you know, God, I love them so much, and I'm so grateful for them, but they quote, failed in, in, in regard but he hasn't, he's never left me, he's never forsaken me. And to be honest, I felt that, that consistency, and I see that same goodness in Genesis one and two, which makes Genesis three so heart-wrenching, so heart-wrenching, the shame. And I, you know, in the work that we do at Phoenix One, there's so much, so much shame. And what does the Lord do? I always joke, like, these clothes that we're wearing are an indication of sin. But also, in our sin, he clothes us. Come on, he's the one that helps us cover up? Wow, that's mind-blowing. The mercy of God, and instead of just eradicate, this didn't work out, no mercy there. So anyway, so now you guys make it all smart. You know, you guys. <laughs> yeah, BC, I'm curious if you have some thoughts on that. I know we got to hear from John a lot of his thoughts of what you actually see happening. Uh, but I know you are, as we've established, the one uh, who, who, who profoundly loves the Old Testament and, uh, and a bit of a Hebrew scholar yourself. Uh, what, do you, what do you see as, as far as the character of God? That when we say, okay, creation, evolution, 6,000, 20 bajillion years, set that aside. Uh, for sure, the one thing we can't do is set aside the fact that uh, the fact that the beginning of Genesis is telling us something true, mm -hmm. it's authoritatively speaking this. It's inspired by God. We're not crossing our fingers when we say those things. Uh, what is it telling us that that's that feels inarguable? That's really a, just the most valuable things in there. Um, I think Jeff pretty much summarized everything. I echo a lot of what he said. Um, my thing is uh, that. The first for me that made focus in there would be that we, uh, God created everything in perfect order. We could very easily have just this one and that's it, right? Tells us God created everything, it was good. That was a complete creation account, but why is there Genesis 2? Mm. It gave us a total, the flip side of that God who is powerful and totally in control and sovereign. The flip side of that is his imminence. Mm. is how closely he walked with Adam. Mm. He, and, and so you have, I think in Genesis 1 and 2, you have these two sides of God being really fleshed out in those two chapters, and those are really foundational to our faith in God, that you cannot 
choose one over the other. You cannot choose the God of imminence and love and mercy and compassion and forget about his holiness, his power and his justice. Those are two sides of God that complement each other. And I think those are foundational for us to understand what happened in Genesis 3. Because if you don't see that, and we go straight to Genesis 3 and we say, why? Why does God punish us? Because there's so much, so much was at stake. And we lost so much. I mean, we lost paradise when we enter into Genesis 3. Yeah. Uh, last topic I want to talk about, uh, which is maybe where we could have started, right? Uh, and Jeff alluded to this at the beginning of his message and said, I'm not even going to go there because we only have so much time. Uh, but the beginning of the creed says, I believe in God. Uh, and, and Jeff, you made the, the, the statement. That, that's a whole other conversation. There's so many arguments. And, I, and I, would, I, I would just open this up by saying there are, and I think you might even mention this earlier, John, there are countless really solid arguments uh, that would, would point to God in, in the same way that like, you know, if you remember geometry in 10th grade, you know, you'd have these proofs, you know, that you're having to go through. There really are some really solid arguments that feel a bit almost like a geometric proof uh, for the existence of God. I, I think we were all agreeing that's done very little for any, you know, there, I've said earlier, there's probably three people in the world who believe that God exists and have come to know him because of an argument for the existence of God, and yet it's helpful. And yet for some people, it's a barrier for them even considering getting to know God, and yet for others of us, it's, it's fortifying in our faith to know that actually this is reasonable and logical. But I'm just curious uh, for, for some of us, maybe we can start with John, like, like when you talk about a proof for God, what, what's, what's one of those arguments or trains of thought that's uh, been intellectually satisfying for you? So I think the, the way that I approach this is that we cannot try to prove God by the means in which He Himself is different from what we think He is provable. So what do I mean by this? Like a lot of very famous arguments that try to uh, say that God doesn't exist tends to come from atheists or scientists, right? There's no empirical evidence, we can't test God, we can't see God, and so and so forth, right? But, and so I'm speaking like uh, as a chemist in my background. The, the reason why these kinds of uh, proofs or tests for God fail is because science is trying to prove that God exists by scientific, uh, empirical, testable methods. But that's not who God is because God is not a material thing. God is spirit, right? And so because of this, the methods in which science tries to prove God really doesn't work. It falls flat. So it is, it is almost like a scientist trying to say, well, prove to me uh, that love exists. You, ju you just can't because love is not a material thing. So how do we know love exists in this world? And actually, I had a conversation with an atheist about this one time. Because she asked me, uh, well, do you believe in God? I said, well, yes, I do. I, I do believe in God. I said, well, why do you believe in God? I, I believe in God because uh, I, I ask God to come into my life and I've experienced God's love, I experienced His presence, and uh, that's how I know God exists. And she frankly said to me, well, you know, I haven't experienced God, you know, uh, I, I haven't seen God, you know, and just because you've experienced God and, you know, uh, you've felt that love, it doesn't mean God exists, you know. So I said to her, and I asked her, I said, well, have you ever fallen in love with anybody before? She said, 
Well, yeah, I have, you know. I, I've, I've dated uh, some, some guys before and I've fallen in love before. I said, okay, that's great that you've had that experience. But there are many children in this world who are without parents, who are orphans. They've never experienced love. And just because you've experienced love doesn't mean that it's real because they haven't experienced love because for them, love doesn't exist. And so, God is like one of those things. The Bible says in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. And love is like that as well. Until we've really had that experience of love, we really don't know whether it exists or not. We can hear people talking about it. We can hear people singing about it. We can hear people say, I believe in love, and so on and so forth. But it is by the testimony of people who have fallen in love, by the experience of people who have fallen in love, by seeing the effects of love on other people that testify to that uh, power that it, ha it has in them, we come to a closer understanding there must be something to it. So I think that part of how I approach this is that God is one of those things. We can hear people talking about it. We can hear people saying that I've changed, you know, I've experienced God, I felt, and so forth. But unless we've really tasted and or asked God to come into our life, it will always forever remain window shopping or window dressing. We're just behind on the other side of the pain, but we've never really stepped into the store to actually experience and know what it is, that, uh, who God is. BC, what I, and then when we were talking before, you were saying, I, th those arguments mean nothing to me. Um, maybe you could speak a little bit, though, what, uh, for you on a personal level, what, God, I believe in God. Why, why would you affirm that? Yeah. I think for me, it was very much, I, I started with experience and the study and the understanding comes later. I was a teenager. I was trying to find the meaning of life. Um, I, was, I had friends and, you know, had all, who was trying to commit suicide. So it was really uh, through this whole experience of really trying to understand who I, who I, who I am in this world, what, why was I here, and what is my purpose in this world that I came to know and understand who God is. And it, it is, it's like a door. Through that, it opens the, the door into the Bible. When, when I pick up the Bible, it's, it opens up a whole new understanding of who God is for me. Yeah. Thank you. And then let's, let's wrap it up with the guy who kicked us off. Uh, yeah. Jeff, what about you? Yeah. So I love that the creeds say, I believe. Um, it doesn't say I know. And they could have said, I know, but they said, I believe, because they knew that it was an act of faith. And so I think that was one of the things I, that's the taste and see. I know, I, I, I believe because I have tasted and I have seen that he is good. You know, Psalms 34, and I know because he has been my shelter. He has been my a place in, where I've been, and he's near to the brokenhearted. That's another verse in, in 34. He's near to the brokenhearted, you know? And I myself have experienced that. And I, that was a part of kind of the end of my, Stockton, David had, David Stockton and I were talking, and, and he, he really, I had a different way I was gonna end uh, last week. I, 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 had, I had a really great story that I wanted to tell. And he, he encouraged me to bring in my own personal story, which I'm so grateful for that. Because my personal story with the Lord has been, I was brought up in the church my whole life. And then it was like really wrestling, which I think that's what 
humanity is doing. The rest, like Ecclesiastes is a book that's like Solomon, the wisest man who's ever lived is going, how? How is this real? What? It's one of my favorite books. There's so much tension in the book of Ecclesiastes as Solomon's trying to reconcile a good God and a broken world. And he's trying to go, how does this make any sense? And he keeps repeating these same things. There's a time for this and there's a time for this and there's a time for this. As he's trying to explain that, I feel so deeply that as a human being. And yet, in hospital rooms, I have this story, I'll tell you. Um, this for me is like one of these really beautiful moments where I tasted and I saw that the Lord was good. So my son had leukemia. Thankfully, he was three and a half years, cancer-free, praise God. But he's, he's like got all these chemo bags attached to him. And like when we're in the hospital for weeks at a time, uh, just horrible. Kids are sick. I mean, it's cancer ward, children's cancer ward. So he was on this IV pole, and we used to, like, hold him on the IV pole. Like, he'd stand on it, you know, and then I'd wheel it down. And he said, Dad, throw me. And I was like, throw you? Like a bowling ball? Down the... And he was like, do it. So, like, I literally, like a bowling ball, I chucked him on this IV pole, and he's, like, spinning down the hallway. And, I, and he's laughing hysterically. And the nurses, while freaking out, are laughing hysterically. And I had this moment where I was like, this child is dying. He's got poison attached to his body that's destroying anything that's good in him. And here's joy. I felt the joy of the Lord in my son, and the joy of the Lord in depravity. And it just like... I've tasted and seen that he's good. It wasn't, I didn't manufacture joy. Like it wasn't like, you know, and you want a trip to Disney. No, it was like in suffering, in pain, in agony, seeing the Lord in my son as he's going down and believing in faith that he was gonna heal him. And so for me, it was, that's where incarnation is so important is he didn't leave us into the despair of so much of what we experienced a lot in the Old Testament. Um, he comes near, and I have felt that nearness. He moved into not just the neighborhood, 30,000 foot, he moved into my neighborhood, and I've tasted and he's seen, and he's rescued me, and, and so I'm going to go, I believe because I've tasted and I've seen, um, but I've also come to know him intimately and, and, and the nearness in brokenness and all those types of things. So I can argue theologically, philosophically, but the greatest argument that I do have is my own personal experience. Um, I think we all have that. And I think that's a part of testimony. Part of testimony, each one of you, I believe, has had your ups and downs with God the Father, God the Creator, God Almighty, and as we work through that one another, we have a world out there who's begging for us to stop faking it. Because I'll tell you some of the most obnoxious people that we met in the hospital were Christians who could not deal with pain, could not deal with suffering. And they had to, re they had to go, see, God's good. Everything will work out together. La, 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 la. And it wasn't gospel. They were blind 
to allowing their humanity to wrestle and struggle through what was going on. And so um, a part of your testimony is the highs and the lows and then coming back to the fact that he is good. He is good and he is God and we are not. And I don't know about you, I wanna worship a holy, holy, holy other God, not just something I can scientifically, rationally, or philosophically get my arms around. The fact that he's so mysterious, so awe-inspiring, draws me near. I've been married to my wife for 25 years. I'm just getting started. It's awesome. 25 years, and I'm like, I feel like I'm just getting started, right? Just getting started. How much more beautiful is that relationship with the Lord? And so... That would probably be my pastoral moment, you know, of like taste and see. And then go tell the world what you've seen. Go allow yourself to authentically live out that faith in the marketplace. Dialogue with people. Like this is what we've been doing, just dialoguing with one another. Dialogue. Don't be afraid. Read books that atheists write. Allow it to challenge your faith. Read really, really wonderful, deep, rich, philosophical, theological books that then help build you up and you know, work through that. It's such a huge part of our faith. Instead of us, we don't have a blind faith. We just don't. There's a lot of other world religions that have a blind faith. Would you agree with that? Well, I wouldn't say blind. I would say blind. sincere faith. Yes, sincere faith. Yeah. Yes. But, uh, so anyway. Amen. Well, that, that, was, uh, that was awesome and, and quite an awesome place to, to land the plane there, Jeff. Thank you so much. Uh, can um, I share one yeah, thing real quick? Yeah, squeeze one in, yeah. Sorry. It's been all so rich. How could I say no? <laughs> Sorry. I read this this week, and it's just mind-blowing for me. Uh, this is coming from Peter, and it says, Doubting God is painful and frightening because we think we're leaving God behind when in fact we are only living behind ideas about God that we are used to surrounding ourselves with. The small God, the God within our control, the God who moves in our circles, the God who agrees with us. And I think this is what this kind of conversations help us to grow beyond ourselves. Amen. Um, yeah, I really quickly just want to rattle off a couple little resources maybe I know uh, we chose not to dig too much into any of those arguments, but those arguments for the existence of God, they exist. There's an argument from the laws of, uh, of, of logic. There's an argument from the laws of thermodynamics to be discussed, kind of that unmoved mover. Uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel's book, uh, Man is Not Alone, has a really beautiful argument from a number of angles, but he talks about an argument from the reality of the existence of, of beauty, yeah. right? When you touch something beautiful, you realize that there's got to be something more than that. Uh, there are countless arguments uh, that, that we could talk about and go through that are intellectually pretty satisfying. Uh, also, I wanted to say, uh, John was talking a little bit about, you know, material, like God's not material. Uh, there's a book written by J.P. Moreland, uh, yep. uh, Scientism versus Secularism, I think, yep. Yep. Uh, that discusses that. Jeff mentioned the idea of the, the kind of the cultural lenses that we're looking at. Uh, there's a book called, that I love, there's two books called, uh, Jeff, Jeff's smiling because he hears me talk about it all the time, but uh, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, uh, and then a sequel uh, through Individualist Eyes that hits on that a lot. So, and then uh, uh, BC was talking a little bit about um, 
some of uh, kind of the, the beginning of Genesis and what we see in kind of that, uh, there's an argument for an old earth that is found in the scripture and I think the book, uh, The Lost World of Genesis 1, I don't know the author of that, it doesn't come to mind, Walton. but John Walton, John Walton uh, is, is a good discussion of that. So the, there's a big long list of that. And the reason, the reason for God, Keller's book I think is just a really great book to kind of, if it's reason and you walk through, he does such a great job. I think it's, it's the reason for God, right? Is that what it is? It's something like that, yeah. Tim Keller. Yeah. Great book. So anyway, there, there's a bunch of those for those who want to dive deeper than the deep dive. Um, and with that, I just want to say, Jeff, John, BC, thank you. That was absolutely amazing. Um, I wish we could keep going for another couple hours. But uh, let me pray for us, and then, and then we'll, uh, we'll close it up. So, uh, Lord Jesus, uh, God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, we worship you. And we thank you that you are a God who's not afraid of our questions. Um, uh, and I don't know why, but you're not a, afraid of our thoughts either, because sometimes our thoughts can be a little bit weird. Um, but you will open yourself up to conversation with us. Um, you tell us that it's the glory of kings to seek out the matters that you've hidden. Um, and so we want to seek these things out, Lord. Um, and we want to know you. All of this is not just for intellect. It's not just to feel smart. Um, it's not just to feel like, yeah, we know better and other people are not intelligent and not reasonable. It really is because we, we love you. And we want to know you and we want to understand you. And we want to just plumb the depths of all that you are and who you are, Lord. I mean, we want others to experience, to encounter you, to love you, and to be loved by you too. And so, Lord, we do love you. And we do believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much. And thank you guys for joining us. Thanks for everybody who's listening.